I'm Lucy, I'm from Interference Saturn, an animation studio in Edinburgh. Um, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to the BAFTA Scotland screening and question and answer session of Sean the Sheep, Farmageddon. So with me today are Paul Cuny, who's the producer of the film. Richard Phelan and Will Beecher, who co-directed. So we'll spend about 20 minutes having some questions and answers, and then it'll be over to you guys um, for some questions from you, so think about what you might like to ask. Uh, you'll also see that the, the talent are here with us tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so right at the very end, if anybody wants to come down and have a photograph, that's fine, and we'll let you know when you can do that. So, thanks yeah. for coming. Thank you. Um, to kick things off, I'd quite like to ask, and maybe this is a question for Paul, mm. what was the genesis of the second movie? How did it come about? How, what, what sparked the story? How did it, how did it start? Well, the first film, you know, we, we really started that not knowing whether we could tell a story with no dialogue. And that, that was all we obsessed about for a long time, was is this a kind of sensible thing to do? So the story was very organic to the characters and their world. So it was quite a low-concept idea. And after we felt it worked, we felt we could start putting them into different worlds and playing with genre. And so sci-fi came up very early. Actually, Richard Starzak, who created the series uh, and you know, worked on the first film as director, uh, really started talking about sci-fi straight away. And he and I had been talking about sci-fi ideas anyway. And it just felt like it kind of fit together really well, you know, kind of farms and aliens and, you know, the film Signs was something we start, you know, and he started to draw pictures. So it, it kind of landed very quickly and it was a genre that Hardman had never done as well, which was something that, you know, is fun for us. Fab, thank you. Well, that actually leads on to another question that I had, mm. which was... Um, about the nature of telling a film with no verbal dialogue and how you script it and how, what, how that affects any creative decisions that you make. Well, I, I can start with the script. Because uh, that's something we work on quite heavily. Um, and actually one of the things we've, we found in making these films is that the scripting process is only part of that storytelling process. In animation this is true anyway, that you start drawing and you storyboard the film. But with Sean, you write a script and it's just a block of description. You know, there's no dialogue at all. And so you start to draw it and you suddenly start thinking, oh, oh this doesn't work. You know, and so that's the process that then kind of takes over. And Rich is our story expert, actually, so I'll, I'll let him talk about that bit. Hello. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the story process is... So we're given that block of text in the story department. Um, and then it's just turned into the visual language of film, so wides and close-ups. But then also all the jokes and visual gags are then road-tested. And so story and edit become a sort of back-and-forth process where a story, we'll storyboard an idea, we'll put it together and we'll watch it. Um, and then we'll go, does that joke work? Can you understand, without dialogue, how everyone feels in the scene? And then it goes back to story and they reboard it and it comes back. So a Shaun the Sheep film is about a quarter of a million storyboards 
And so it's boarded and boarded and boarded. Every scene is boarded 20, 30, 40 times. Because, um, yeah, it's just like a tiny eye flicker is all you'll need to go, oh, Lula's sad, or Ritzer suddenly realises like he's got to wear that suit. Um, but they'll just go through tiny inflections just to find the right one. And then that is then given to the animators as their sort of, sort of ground zero to go, this is the storyboard and this is the timing. Now you embellish it more, you bring it to life. So that's the... That's the story process. <laughs> so with stop motion, do you have a higher storyboard to, to second of animation ratio than you might on, well, obviously live action or digital animation? I think it's more um, on Shaun the Sheep there's a higher ratio because if there was dialogue, we could draw one pose and open the mouth and then the dialogue could run. But it's like, because um, Shaun, well, because none of the characters can talk, every tiny inflection has to be sort of road tested to know it's going to work. There's also a bit of discipline as well in the story process because you go through screenings, don't we, regularly, yeah. where you show it to studio heads and you know finances and so on, and it's really difficult with Sean to know whether it's working because people look at it and go, well, they're not doing anything, they're not emoting on screen. So a lot of that storytelling then comes down to instinct and do we believe we can get it right? Mm. But that is a really tricky part of our process, I think, and probably the hardest I found on both films is we've had moments where people have said, it doesn't make sense. And then we animate it, and it makes perfect sense, but they can't see what we can see. And do you find, do you find that when you do animate it, that it works, or have you had any moments where you found that something that on paper w was going to work, or you weren't sure of, and then you put in days of animation, and it maybe didn't? Uh, yeah, sadly that is the case. <laughs> we, um, we, we do work, as, as Paul and Rich have said, it's all about preparation, so we do so much to try and road test all the ideas before the animators get near to, to animating it, because it's such a labour-intensive process um, and part of the process that comes after the storyboard is, is Rich and I acting out the scenes with the animators trying to get really get them to understand exactly what the characters are thinking and what the timing might be um, and just occasionally you know they spend a couple of weeks animating the shot and for whatever reason it doesn't really work the idea doesn't come across or sometimes it's just not as funny as we wanted it to be so you know, I think towards the end we cut a few, couple of scenes that are, that are taken a while, but they just weren't really helping the story. So is there lots of video footage of you two with Sean and Lula? <laughs> there is, yeah. I mean, it's not just us. I mean, we rope in anyone in the studio anyone that can help. Anyone past. <laughs> so the, uh, the runners, the assistant animators, well, if you saw the hazmat scenes, you know, we, we had to get a large group of crew to literally to run around the studio uh, bumping into each other and all sorts. <laughs> yeah. um, so that again leads nicely onto a question I really wanted to ask: was um, how was the process of co-directing? Was mm. it very much a shared vision and you bounced off of each other, or was it a case that you took greater responsibility for different areas of the filmmaking? How did it work between you? Well, Rich started way before I did because he was really involved in story very heavily at the start of the film. And then when I came on board, we both um, became directors at the same time. And at that point, it was all about me trying to absorb everything that had gone on in the project. So we, we then spent about two months, I think, just 
rigorously trying to work through. We're in Act One at that point, mm-hmm. uh, looking at uh, you know the story as a whole and working on story briefs and uh, voice records and things together. So literally doing everything together for a little period of time, like a like we're in a new relationship. Yeah. <laughs> We, we had known each other for about 10 years, working on different projects at Ardman, but always in different departments. Um, but I think we have quite similar senses of humour, which is helpful. And so on the whole, it was a case of just trying to, trying to get on the same wavelength. And then once we got the whole film to a certain point, we then literally sort of split it down the middle, went off in our separate sequences and, and directed those, but always coming back at the yeah. end of the day. We would meet every morning and uh, healthily debate what the scenes were about. No, it's my turn. Uh, And we would finish each other's... I was going to do that. I had that gag ready as well. No, yeah, so we would meet in the morning to discuss all the scenes that would come up for the day. um, And then... In the evening, we would watch rushes from everything that was shot and sort of go, oh, um, I have this scene on, on my side of the fence, say, like, I have this joke, what do you think? Or it could pay off again in your scene. like, Or an animator has done this thing with Lula where she looks really cute. You should come and see this footage. It will sort of, like, it will work in a scene that I know you're working on. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> Keep it. And you both have backgrounds in animation and storyboarding. Um, it'd be lovely to hear a bit about your backgrounds, your roots into directing. And I'm also slightly curious to know whether you were hands-on. Did you elbow a storyboard or a side at some point and <laughs> take the pencil? Never. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so I, I uh, studied at National Film School in uh, Beckensford, which is just outside London, and I studied animation direction and I made a short film there about animals that didn't speak. Uh, and Richard Starzak, he saw that, and so he asked me to come to the studio. I saw it before. Paul I saw it before. <laughs> and Paul Just saw to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful relationship. Um, no, but he, he uh, asked me to come in, and I started working on Shaun the Sheep Series 3 as a storyboard artist. And then um, under Richard's sort of mentorship, I became a writer on Shaun the Sheep and then the head of story on uh, Farmer's Llamas and then a feature story artist with him. And so it's sort of just progression, a progression through that. Um, I haven't always worked at Ardman. Before that, I used to work in London as a commercial storyboard artist at a studio uh, called Nexus and Framestore. Um, so it was a really good, like, because commercials are very short turnarounds and sort of lots of ideas and sort of a series, like, episodes are six minutes long, it's bigger. And then just generally, like, up until, like, 90 minutes, it's just you can sort of tell richer and deeper stories. This is sort of the path I've gone down. Mm. And, and I have a different background, but started off making films as a hobby, really, as a, as a boy, and then um, wanted to study it. So I started sort of investigating the industry and trying to get work experience and that kind of thing. I studied in Edinburgh. I did animation at the college and throughout my summers, I worked at Ardman on various projects. So I had a work experience as a model maker on Chicken Run, and that was my first route in. <laughs> and then really, it was a case of when I graduated, I'd made a film that was really 
there to sell me as a, an animator. I managed to get work on Where Rabbit, and I worked on all the films following that, just as a as a character development animator. Um, but in the meantime, in the background, always thinking of film ideas and and wherever possible, trying to make little projects of my own. And then, uh, what happened? Oh yeah, so. I worked on Early Man with Nick, and in that role I was animation director. So I, I at that point, became a bit hands-off. I stopped physically animating the puppets, but more working with the crew and, and directing. And uh, same on Series 5 of Sean. I had a little stint with Rich um, where I storyboarded a couple of episodes because it is such a valuable and important way to learn how to direct. Um, and it's all about the story, really. So it was great to do that, but I realised I couldn't draw how many was it? 2,500 drawings a week or something? I don't know. They're amazingly fast in story and good. And so my natural sort of desire is to work with the physical characters. That's where my comfort zone is. Paul, how mm. many storyboards does one artist have to draw a week on a Sean movie? I, I don't really care about that. <laughs> it's, it, it's not really a process of drawing lots. It's about getting the story down. So I think one of those actually Rich and I often talk about it is that we've you know we work with some artists who are incredibly quick and they're very good at kind of emoting and, get, and getting the story through in very simple lines and then you have some very detailed story artists who their boards are kind of immaculate. Actually Rich is like that. His board's <laughs> terrifyingly good. Um, but you know for us when you get to edit it's really how usable is it? It doesn't matter if you've got two and a half thousand boards if none of it makes sense yeah. <coughs> so um, another question for you when you've got the mic mm -hmm. for anybody here who might not be thoroughly conversant with everything that goes into stop motion animation could you just describe for us a bit about the scale the scope the, the size of the sets the numbers of the animators could you just paint a, a picture <laughs> of the years it takes, oh, all three of you, of the well, making of a, of a feature film. Yeah, no, I, I can talk about it a bit. You know, the, the, the reason I kind of go, oh, is because, you know, the numbers are difficult to quantify and the way the process works is that the, you know, the production kind of ramps up slowly and kind of builds up to a point where you're really kind of motoring. So on this film, we had 28 animators at our peak and something like 35 sets. But... You know, I come from live action. I had no animation background at all before I joined Ardman. Um, and Ardman actually, their process is part animation, part live action. So the best way to think about it is you've got 28 kind of live action sets going at one time. And so the trick for these guys and for Edit and, you know, for anybody like, you know, in my position is to know what, what each of those shots is for and how they fit into the story. So... You know, you've got lots and lots of people working like that. And then on a production side, the way we figure things out is we, we always want the animators working. I think that's probably true in all animation. But the animators are, the, are the, the way we kind of work things out. So we work backwards from that point. Everything is about feeding them. And any downtime for animators, whenever I see an animator... Sitting outside having a cup of tea, I go and moan at my production manager because I know that's downtime that you know we're losing. So it, it's a big process. On this film, there's about 300 names on the credits, but there's probably just over 100 
of core staff who were on it, you know, kind of throughout, uh, you know, the actual making of the film. So it's big and it's it's unwieldy. It's a very unwieldy process in lots of ways. It's you know these guys walk about ten miles a day around sets. You know when you put a Fitbit on them, so it keeps them fit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and for you guys directing, there's obviously there's all sorts going on. We've got spaceships and journeys mm. into space. Could you talk a bit about what some of your biggest technical or creative challenges were? The spaceship is a big challenge. Um, it's about the size of this table the spaceship um, but of course that means they have to build sets to fit in so the underground base where they take it is about the size of this room as a set and so like the sort of the, the stone walls they're, they're easily this high the bigger one was the, the bit at the end with the mech suit climbing the tower the tower was so big they had to lie it down in the studio because it would go through the roof <laughs> and the mech suit was so heavy it would take two people to lift it and then you just leave one animator alone working it out. Um, and so there's there's another job that no one ever knows about. It's called rigging. It's all the um, sort of... If a character leaps in the air, there's a metal rod that holds them up. And then it's digitally painted out. And so it, the riggers come in and they figure out how to hold all this weight. And so there's these huge sort of counterbalances so that the animators can go in and do the most amazing performance. Um, and then you don't see any of it. And it's sort of like... That for me was... Being on set was amazing to watch them sort of just all scurry in, figure it all out. Because I'd go, I want the mech suit to leap. <laughs> and they'd go, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go have a cup of tea. <laughs> and they come and moan at me. <laughs> yeah, he, he did direct like that in that voice. <laughs> but I think that is it. There's so many, there's so many things. Literally every second on screen there's people problem solving the, the minute details that no one would ever think about and the big things are really complicated lots of action sequences and set pieces and then going into space which is something obviously we haven't really done in a film so we had um, lots of challenges there and with Lula creating a character to fit into the world was a challenge because Sean is so iconic and the world that he lives in has been set up so brilliantly by Richard Starzak and and so creating a new character and trying to make that character feel out of this world, but also fit with the sort of aesthetic and feel magical and funny and quirky, was it took a long time, and she changed a lot during the process. Uh, I think that's, yeah. And, and just the stamina, I guess. That's the, yeah. the challenging thing. Like, um, you've got to think about, you've got every day you've got to try and make that joke work really well. And it comes to a point where you're exhausted by the joke itself. It just stops being funny. And, and you rely on the rest of the crew to reassure you sometimes that it is working or it's not working. Uh, yeah, and the, the other thing I think everybody forgets is that edit is kind of central to this. So we end up doing a lot of nights and kind mm. of, you know, evenings. So these guys have been on the floor all day dealing with that. And then I'm sitting down with, with them in edit with our editor, Sim, kind of, tearing what they're doing to pieces going it's not working why are we doing this you know so it's it's really it's a full-on process directing i think you know it's hard work producing but i don't have to you know i didn't have to have the physical stamina that they would through this and i, I and i you know i would 
encourage anybody before they take out a film like this not to take it lightly mm. to understand what's involved in it because it's physically and mentally very tough. Yeah, I'm sure. Lifting spaceships the size of tables. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think now is the time to open this up to the audience. So does anyone have any questions? Um, I think there's a, somebody in glasses at the back there. Was there a hand up? Why, why did you choose to call it from Gidlin? Why did you choose to put these aliens in it? <laughs> Good question. Um, Farmageddon was a joke, actually, that we were in a very early development meeting. So we're sitting around saying, how can we make this funny? You know, what's this about? And Nick Park, who, you know, Wallace and Gromit, Nick Park, said, what about Farmageddon? That's funny, because there's a famous film called Armageddon. I don't know whether you know it. Uh, you should be watching it. Your age. <laughs> um, so we, uh, so it kind of stuck. So we talked, we always talked about that, and then eventually we worked out how that, that fit into the film. And why aliens is because, you know, farms and mid, mid uh, kind of America, American farms, are places where traditionally people always imagine aliens landing. So it just felt like it all kind of came together. Right, any other questions? Uh, over there, you please. Coming from an interest in concept art, how, and you talked a lot about storyboarding, but where did the actual concepts fit in? Did you work through storyboards and put concepts through them? Or did you say, for instance, with colour, completely work separately, or did it just all incorporate? Both. Um, <laughs> so, we would, we would discuss with our concept artists um, ideas for... So the idea was um, water and sort of... So Lula should look like a sort of um, tropical fish. Mm. And so the Agent Red's lair would look like the sort of cave where you see sharks sleep. And like mm. her mech suit is based on a killer whale's uh, nose. And all the hazmat helmets are based on sharks as well. And her home planet looks like um, a fluorescent sort of algae. Yeah. And so they took this idea, so they, they researched the real world and then they start to sort of build up all these sort of like just amazing pieces of artwork to go, here's a springboard for some ideas. And then that would inspire the story team who would then start to work up the storyboards. But then we would choose key storyboards to give back to the concept artists and go, could you now paint that for us? So then we could then take that to the crew and go, when it's built and it's lit, it's going to look something like this. It would just inspire everyone on, on the, uh, in the whole team to do it. So it's sort of like, it's a little bit before and it's a little bit after. But then likewise, same for Lula when she was designed, because they're just made in sort of like a cream-coloured clay. Um, the visual development artist, he just did loads of different paintings of what she could look like next to Sean and in the world so we can see how she's going to fit in. And then on just one of them, he just wrote, uh, just for no reason whatsoever, he just wrote the word glitter and pointed at her ears. And we were like, that's genius. Um, and so then it became this whole R&D process of how they could get glitter inside the silicon. And so they were buying like different types of nail varnish and injecting it in. But it's like, because of just that sort of painting, you just go, well, let's try and figure out how to do it. And it starts this whole snowball effect. I think this gentleman in the middle had a question. Um, congratulations, the film's great. Um, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about how you worked with the composer? I thought the music was really good, but there's also, it seems virtually wall to wall, there's an awful lot in there. And I'm, I'm 
assuming that there was a final edit with temporary music and at that stage the composer was on board, or how did it, how did it work? Uh, well, I'll do a bit and then Paul should talk yeah. more. But we, we do, um, from the animatic stage, the edit team start laying in temporary soundtracks, and a lot of those were from sci-fi films, where appropriate. Um, and so we get used to the sort of tone of the music all the way through, really helps get an idea of how the film's going to work. But then we started working with Tom Howe, the composer, fairly early on, so it wasn't, it wasn't uh, towards the end, it was sort of midway through, I'd say. And he watches the animatic, he, he sends some versions over, we listen, we feed back. It's over several months, I don't know how many, but quite a long time. Yeah. And it is tricky with Sean, it's incredibly tricky because you've got a, a film with no dialogue and all the sound effects, music and voices are added. They don't exist when we make it, you know. So, so it is a balancing act of finding the moments where the film can breathe and the moments where the music carries it through. Um, but we were, we, I loved working with Tom. He was, he was really, really, you know, exciting and brought a lot of new ideas that we hadn't had on the first yeah, one. Yeah, he's brilliant. Because the other thing to say is the first film, uh, you know, music was kind of integral. It was a song that we wrote that kind of, you know, pulled the whole film together. And with this film, we didn't have that. We didn't have the same idea. So the music became, it was trickier trying to figure out what is it going to be. And so Tom, you know, ended up writing suites uh, of music for different characters. So we often come at it from that point of view. What's the character like? How would they sound? And then we start to evolve it. But then we had to fit all the songs in as well, because nearly, well, I think just about every song you heard in the film uh, is original composition, other than the Chemical Brothers song that they rewrote. They, they remixed that for us as well. So the music in itself kind of is a massive part of Sean because it, it is so integral to the storytelling and kind of keeping the energy of the film going as well. You know, you can't, unfortunately, as lovely as Tom's music is, it's very difficult to, to just use score all the way through. You know, we have tried that, but it just feels like you need songs, you need to break things up. Right, time for one more question. Oh, um... Like during productions, do you ever like think about uh, the future, like pro for future projects? Like, in, like when you're working on this one, did you ever think about ideas you could do, like maybe for like a Shaun of Sheep free or something else entirely? He's yeah. not allowed to have ideas. <laughs> no, I was gonna say yeah. I would write them down and put them in a little box, and I'll open it in a couple of months. Um, no, it's just it's all engrossing. So um, we might discuss things and go, that'd be funny. And li I'm not joking. I would write it down but just put it in a drawer to go, that's not for now, because like, I have to sort of focus on this. I can't be going, oh, what about that idea then? <laughs> and it's like, it's like, it's so demanding to go on set and talk, talk to the lighting or the rigging or the animators, and it's like, you just go, and this is why Lula's doing this, or this is why the light is here. So it's like, every, I, ha I have every answer, and if I don't have to go away and think of them all, or Will does, it's like, we can't sort of like be... 80-20 with that other project um, and I, I think the other thing to say is that we have a lot of ideas within the film that we're still trying to figure out whilst we're shooting it so there are sections of it that involve a lot of sort of figuring out and sometimes we'd have great ideas that we thought were really good but didn't fit where we tried to put them so there'd be cases where we'd have an idea 
but we weren't going to use it in the film. It went away and then it came back in, but not ideas for a different film, really. Not as far as I was concerned. It was more, as Rich said, it was just everything. It was from the moment we woke up to the moment we went to bed, and sometimes in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, I think that was our last question. So, oh, one more I'm question. Not, not. And I think there's somebody with the hand up. Um, um, my daughter wanted to ask this question, but she's now too shy to decide. <laughs> she wanted to know who did the burp. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Great question. That is a good question. We've we've got this incredible voice actress um, doing the voice of Lula, and she uh, she's a relatively unknown but very good. Um, sort of stage performer who'd spent a while. In fact, Paul actually, I think, found her somehow. Um, but she she just put on this fantastic voice with lots of variation and range. And she did do lots and lots of burps for us in <laughs> in the voice record. But none of them were quite long enough. So <laughs> I think we have to join a few together. But do you know the true origin of that? Burp? I'm not. I'm sworn to secrecy. <laughs> Maybe it was Paul. He's known me. for that. No, it's not me. I can guarantee that. That was a good question. Oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you. I think that's all really that remains is to say thank you to BAFTA Scotland. Um, thank you for, to these guys for making a stunning film and for coming here tonight to talk to us about it. Um, the film itself is out on general release on Friday the 18th of October. Correct. Yep. <laughs> yes. So see it again. There are so many references in that film. I think you could all see it about 20 <laughs> times and still be getting things from it. Um, and yeah. So I think if anybody would like to come and meet the cast, please form an orderly mm. queue. Thank you.